Hello and welcome back to Heights Library's podcast, Unpacking 1619, where you can explore the interviews we've collected with scholars from around the country, in which we unpack topics relating to race in America. I'm your host, John Pichet, and I'm thrilled to share these interviews with you here. Joining us today is Professor Samantha Pinto, Department of English, University of Texas at Austin, to discuss her book, Infamous Bodies, Early Black Women, Celebrity, and the Afterlives of Rights. Using the idea of vulnerability as a touchstone to explain celebrity of Sally Hemings and Sarah the Hottentot Venus Bartman, Professor Pinto describes how each woman's agency is complicated by dominant systems of coercion and violence. We spoke about this on June 12th, 2023. Hi, I am Samantha Pinto. I am professor of English at UT Austin, as well as um, affiliated faculty of African and African diaspora studies and women's and gender studies here. Uh, I also direct the Humanities Institute, I should say that, so. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. And uh, today we're going to be talking about your book, uh, Infamous Bodies, Early Black Women's Celebrity and the Afterlife, Afterlives, sorry, of Rights. So could you uh, begin by just kind of giving us an idea of how you came to this book and how you chose the five women in it? Absolutely. Um, it's so interesting to think about for me now, a few years out from this book, but then also um the, the real story is a push off from my first book. Uh, my first book was about experimental black women's writing. So very like, you know, weird 20th century postmodern writing, right? That was formally innovative. Um, and while I was doing that, right, I was writing this chapter that was about uh, the, for, uh, about an author named Jackie Kay, a, a, a black Scottish uh, author. And she was writing about blues women. She wrote this kind of memoir slash biography of Bessie Smith. And I started thinking so much about the intellectual work that Black women's celebrity um, did for um, not just Black culture, right, in the way it's usually celebrated, but in terms of the Black political. And there were, there were, there, there were and are lots of Black feminist scholars working on that kind of blues era. Um, and then at the same time, I was writing this chapter about Elizabeth Alexander, the poet and memoirist and, and obviously president of the Mellon Foundation now, and about her sort of recouping of um, Sarah Bartman, uh, otherwise known as the Venus Hottentot. And she was doing the same thing, like sort of reconsidering the, the intellectual and political work of Black women celebrities um, in, in these very dicey sort of sexualized and and um crossover you know white audience um situations right uh exhibitions and performances and i really wanted to challenge myself with with this other book right with the next book to really dig into that so to move away from maybe weirder or different forms will give us sort of like more and denser sort of um, political nodes of thinking about um, Black feminism and transnational feminism and to really say, well, no, I want to dig into the popular. I want to think about the work that they're doing. Um, and from there, it really came together for me in sort of thinking about this key era, because I, I was also studying critical human rights at the time, 
the sort of key era of nation building here, of empire building elsewhere, and sort of thinking these are the these are the women, right, that are doing it, right? I had I had written this sort of one-off seminar paper on Phyllis Wheatley called "Making the First Black Celebrity," um, where I was really thinking about how she was she crafted herself and also has been crafted. And it's just sort of emerged from there that I already had these three figures and then stretched to do work on Seacole, who's amazing, Mary Seacole, a Jamaican nurse, um, and Sarah Forbes Bonetta, who's lesser known, but now is gaining more traction, especially in England. And I thought, these are the foundation of, of the Black political um, or an alternate genealogy of the Black political beyond the Black radical tradition that is usually defined through civil rights and post and then sort of backlogged through who we think of as key heroes and interlocutors in the 19th century, um, in 19th century America around that. And I wanted to challenge all of that um, through these very, you know, sticky figures of, of folks who are not easy heroines, um, and not not villains, but they're also not tragic heroes, right? In the in the way they sometimes get told. Yeah, and I think before we get into Sally Hemings, we should probably yeah. um, offer a, a trigger warning because we're going to be talking a lot about um, some of the um, kind of rape culture and sexual assault. So absolutely, there's no way to talk about it without talking about um, sexual violence and the difficulties of thinking through that when you think about their um, when you think about Hemings's long-term uh, entanglement with with Jefferson and his family and beyond. Before we get into that, though, I, I do yeah. want to hit uh, kind of something that your book really brings to the forefront and um, complicated my thinking about some of this, too, which is uh, you kind of frame all of this in a um, vulnerability and how you kind of unpack that vulnerability is incredibly interesting. So maybe you could kind of talk about how you see it in relation to um, Hemings and also Barton. Absolutely. Um, and again, I, I I was sort of studying critical human rights at the time, and there are lots of theorists of vulnerability there. Martha Feynman being the biggest one. I always like to cite my sources because really this is, she's doing incredible public facing work. This is not something that this is, I'm, I'm not trained in legal theory, right? And I could pick it up. Um, uh, sort of thinking about how do we come at rights, not from an entitlement, Thomas Jefferson kind of style rights, but from one that assumed vulnerability at its core. Um, and then theorists like um, Kimberly Juanita Brown developed that like in their own work as well. So for me, vulnerability is core because I think so much of work and you could understand it in my field in, in Black feminism and in um, uh, Black studies, right, um, is really invested in agency, right, and in recovering stories of agency. And I really, again, wanted to move the, the base political subject away from that and say, what if we imagined it not as someone who was rights bearing, but someone who was carrying vulnerability. Um, and to me, that is a, a quintessentially feminist 
subject, right? And theorists like Judith Butler talk about that now too, right? Voted, um, thinking about revolution through vulnerability and political uh, work through vulnerability. It's quintessentially feminist to think of. And it also really, really alters what, who we think of as the subject of the field. And then also how we think of the trajectory of the field, how we can tell stories that are not just tragic or heroic um, and instead exist in this liminal space. Um, and, and to me, um, you know, Bartman obviously is key to this and she's key to this legally, right? Because she gets involved, uh, Sarah Bartman is involved in this case when she is uh, coerced into going to England to perform where she's at the crux of this post-enslavement, you know, um, articulation of free labor contracts, right? So either she is a trafficked victim or she is a consenting laborer and there's not really any space in between for someone like her, even though um, that space exists so palpably for women in particular and at, obviously at the time for um, Black women and women um, from what then became the empire, right? And was the empire. Um, and that was so, that's so the crux, not this agentic consenting subject. Uh, um, it is it is some mix between sexual trafficking, sort of like consent through transaction, right? But not, not coerced, right? Uh, there's another uh, excellent historian, uh, Emily Owens, who's writing about this issue of, uh, she calls it Consent in the Presence of Force. That's the title of her book from UNC Press, where she's thinking thinking through all of this through um, enslavement um, and sort of sexual freedom suits and sexual transactions that lead to uh, freedom or not. Yeah, and I thought it was a, such a great way to kind of frame the the interaction and the the ways human lives touch these different structures of power and legal and agency and celebrity and all these different um, terrains, I guess. And it's kind of a borderland that touches all of them. It does. It does. It does. And the other thing is that, um, uh, you know, I'm very interested in public perception um, and the category of celebrity is sort of always already suspect because, again, of its transactional nature, right? The way that you get things, right? You get sort of capital, right, from celebrity. And it always makes figures um, uh, in, you know, in Black feminism and in Black studies who touch on that, right, in that sort of commodified celebrity performative zone, suspect, right? It makes the women suspect. And I want to, I, I want to not undo that or deny the transactional right through it or try to make resistant subjects out of that, but try to think about, as you're saying, that sort of thorniness of how it that vulnerability sort of touches everywhere, right? Um, including how one is supposed to make a living outside of, or make a life outside of uh, marriage and the domestic and or enslavement, coercion, et cetera, right? There's there's not a lot of options for, for women and even fewer, obviously, for Black women of the time. Well, and we also kind of think of history as a monolithic 
you know, it only happened this way because we know that story. When in fact, the complications are what make the story, you know, actually fit into the historical moment. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's so risky to, right? Like to, um, and you've been doing this with your work here. Um, sitting with the complications feels risky at this moment where it feels like, truth can be denied when um, people's humanity is under this suspect feeling. And yet I, I really wanted to sit with like Elizabeth Alexander narrating um, Sarah Bartman by saying, I am the family entrepreneur. Like, what does it mean to sit with this difficult desire um, uh, that we can imagine an alternate trajectory and story for Bartman that doesn't deny coercion or violence right at all but also leaves room for desire right and for a will to do something other than um recoup the stories it, that in the contemporary moment we want we want so desperately and i i uh, i understand that and there's ways i can never understand also as a white woman in this field right but like really dig into that really really dig into that difficulty well, and I think digging into the difficulty of Sally Hemings is probably the most uh, profound way to do that. So can you kind of explain to us how you came to Sally Hemings, how you understand her story? And um, yeah, just kind of, because it's incredible how you kind of unpack her complicated relationship to Jefferson, slavery, desire, agency, vulnerability. It's It's fantastic. It's because so many people before me have worked on Hemings, right? There's, of course, the amazing historian Annette Gordon-Reed, who um, even before the DNA test, right, writes the book that says, actually, historically, you could trace through documentation, um, not just that it was true that they had kids together, it's true, right? But you could actually trace their emotional entanglement as part of her argument, which, again, is really difficult work for a black feminist legal historian like herself, right, to say, actually, I want to trace the emotional ent entanglement between them. Um, and so you see that kind of work, you know, to folks like um, Sarah Clark Kaplan, who writes this um, great book about a, um, not a, so much about Hemings herself, but about um, a, a the narrative that Barbara Chase Rabot writes about her, who also writes a book about Bartman, right? That is really trying to renegotiate what does it mean to think about like autonomy and the erotic when we think about these coerced um, situations, right? What does it mean to write that in uh, to our histories? Um, and then uh, the other thing I should say about coming to this chapter is uh, with my fantastic co former colleague at Georgetown when I was there, um, Laura Smith, we wrote an NEH grant to go to to do this comparative. Um, she's a political scientist to do this comparative course on what is the human or what is equality. Sorry, what is equality? Um, <clears throat> and it was comparative U.S. and African sort of political theory and cases, right? And films and books and other things. And we, part of the grant money uh, from the NEH was to take our students um, for the term to Monticello, right? To take them on a day trip to Monticello as we're reading all of this stuff, as we're investigating um, 
how Sally Hemings and how Jefferson and his role as an enslaver are codified in this space. Um, and that was actually truly remarkable, not just in this very obvious, when I when we first started doing that, it was still called the plantation tour. Um, it was still very, they weren't, they weren't quite there yet, right? Within the span of us starting this grant to the last time I went for the last trip before the book, they had transformed it into the slavery at Monticello tour. They had an app where people were sort of reading um, documented narratives about enslaved life. Um, they were not shying away from thinking about Jefferson's relationship to enslavement, let alone to Sally Hemings. And of course, now they've sort of excavated this room uh, that they've termed Sally Hemings' room. There's some debate about whether it was actually her room, right? But tried to mark, right, the sexual violence and coercion involved to try to mark the kind of labor, the sexual labor and domestic labor involved in her position. Um, and all of that is like this sticky celebrity stuff, right? It's it's um, it's very good that American history is not being taught the way it used to be in these very, very public sites. And it's clearly also, there is a new market for American history. And there is a new market for Sally Hemings's story um, that is different even than the like 80s and 90s boom in Sally Hemings miniseries, right? Where we also had to see a, a different version of 14 year old Sally Hemings being seduced by Jefferson that was like highly sexualized and problematic. Right here now we've got a totally different version of, of the story and it there being a market for it, right? Um, I'm fascinated by that. I, I, you know, I'm a lit scholar by training for me to see the way Sally Hemings as a figure gets operationalized in different contemporary political moments is fascinating, especially because, you know, William Wells Brown writes Clotel in the 1850s and is totally like, oh yeah, we all know Sally Hemings is was with Jefferson and she had kids. Like it's, I call it the, you know, the open secret. I use that kind of theory, the open secret. It's like everybody knew, no one denied this was not new. And this was not a Nat Gordon Reed writing in the eighties, right? Like that told us all this, right? Everybody knew, um, not to mention that we have, act, you know, an actual Hemings Jefferson child giving the story, right? To a newspaper in the 1860s. So it's, you know, I, how could you not dig into this? Especially because there's virtually no trace of her, that her voice doesn't exist. She's barely in the log books, even in Jefferson is a devoted record keeper debates about whether he purposely um, kept her out or whether his um, uh, child came in later, his child with Martha, his white wife came in later and excised, right? All evidence. Um, it's, it's a mystery that's not a mystery. It's fascinating. And it is at it is seated at that very, I mean, this is why Hamilton is so fascinating at this very moment where folks are theorizing the rights of man. How could you not think this is involved? How could you not think that this is 
so deeply imbricated in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And both really obvious who is that subject that gets those ways and really non-obvious ways, right, that involve such deep vulnerability acknowledged, right, all around Jefferson and acknowledged by Jefferson himself, even as he's an enslaver. Well, there also seems to be this uh, primary uh, fear of recognition. So, and it and it talks, and I think it is located in that vulnerability you talk about, because, you know, if everyone knew about Sally Hemings, how did we forget her? How did we erase her? Well, you, it's white supremacist in one hand, but as slavery recedes, another form of violence ascends. So it's this constant battle, I, I think you're saying, between like loud narrative and fight against erasure. And that agency is where that, like in between those two is where Hemings agency comes in. Not only for yeah. history, but also her as a person navigating being 14 to a 40 year old, dealing with a powerful enslaver and rapist, you know, this, all these complications. And yet there's a human girl standing in front of this guy going, okay, now what's next? Right. How do I negotiate this? What is this? What does it mean that she's third generation sexual enslaved labor, right? Um, third generation. What does it mean that she's Jefferson's wife's half sister, sister, right? Like how, like that she, I mean, we talk about grooming now when we think about the, 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 the sexual trafficking of girls, right? Like she was literally groomed for this, right? This, this was her legacy. How do you think about that legacy as labor and as exploitation? And then when we retell the story, how can we as a public look at Yes, the white supremacist story that's very loud and, and also attempting to erase, right, or alter, but also look at the marginalized narratives from marginalized communities that also want to repurpose and reshape, right? Um, and for me, that's always what I'm, you know, really looking at, um, partially because other people are doing this great work to excavate the white supremacist side of things is to say, like, yeah, let's take that as a given, man. They turned her room into a bathroom. Like you, I say in the book, like you can't make this up, right? You can't make up how horrific the erasure is, right? So what have black folks done with that erasure? How have they either not let it happen or repurpose some of that, including, you know, some of the performers that have played her, right? Like Tandy Newton, right? In the Merchant Ivory production of this, right? Uh, um, the movie in the um, early 90s, right? Um, Gwyneth Paltrow was the was the daughter, right? Was Jefferson's white daughter, right? And it, it's, it's fascinating, right? Um, to think about those stories and how imbricated they are, as well as to think about her as an actual subject, right? Um, an affective subject with her own family history, um, uh, that we can never have access to that interiority. Um, how do we start to 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 make it up, right? In that kind of 
you know, critical fabulation, that's Cydia Hartman's term way, how have we made that up? How have we been making it up? And what does that say about the political moments in which it is being remade, right? Um, yeah. Well, one of the ways we make it up, and we meeting a white culture and white supremacy is yes. that we erase her, Sally Hemings, blackness and say that she may have been really light skinned and had straight hair and looked more white. And that's one way that we we make sense of the what happened. And it, it's kind of like erasing the slavery part of it, you know, by, well, she was mostly white. But then when you look at the hot and taut Venus Bartman, the exact opposite is happening, where they couldn't make her black or African enough you know, you say they have to put, what did they put, um, but impl not implants, but like a, a padding on her at some point? Um, yeah, well, she has covering on her uh, at certain points, but um, it's in the play. Oh, um, okay. It's okay. in um, Susan Lurie Parks's play that she's played with exaggerated uh, yeah. prosthetics. So maybe you could talk about her, Bartman, and yeah. how she came to be in the position she was and also the contractual nature of that, because it, I think it's a it's a move from slavery to legal legalization of slavery to a legalization of labor that is very nefarious, it, it, deeply right. Um, and and two scholars that work on this, Lisa Lowe and Amy Drew Stanley, right on on different ways, right. But there's lots of legal theorists too who work on the kind of the, the the promise of the legal employment contract, um, as well as the promise of the marriage contract um, uh, as the the sort of thing that will bring upon that that is the promise of emancipation, right? That of course we know is deeply coerced and not at all uh, uh, free in any kind of way. Um, and so for Bartman, um, it's fascinating in this um, in England, in uh you know post Somerset so post uh, uh legal enslavement in England when England is feeling good about itself about how great it is for divesting from the slave trade and how terrible America is for continuing in the slave trade right and they get to like you know this is their story right um but they're still engaging in imperialism and colonialism obviously like crazy um and they've got to come up with other narratives and they've they've created this public right too through periodical culture and other and other things that is hungry for these stories of absolute difference right of radical difference from colonial subjects right even though bartman bartman's london right, and Victorian London is filled with Black folks, right? Gretchen Gerzina writes about this. Like, this is not, Blackness is not the difference, right, anymore, so to speak, right? It's not enough, right, the, the phenotypic difference of skin. And so instead, they, you know, Bartman is exhibited as this very particular type of, like, interior Africa, uh, indigenous Africa and has to have a completely radical, be, be thought of as a completely different radical body type. And this is in France too, which is also engaging in colonialism and obviously the, all of the drawings that, you know, we have of her, right, are from Cuvier in France, right? Um, 
And so it really is this moment where absolute difference becomes a, a more radical embodied difference needs to be imagined, right, for this public that is now grown up on enslavement and has lots of normalized, right, everyday Blackness around it. And trying to understand how labor is working in the colonies post-enslavement also needs a narrative. And she becomes this really, in many ways, unlikely figure, right, of this post English enslavement landscape where you've got a group of abolitionists, right? Who are like, no, this is, this is just this continued, right? She is just coerced. Also in problematic white saviory ways, right? And then on the other side, you've got this group that's just like, I'll produce a contract. You want me to produce a contract? Here's a contract. And she, you know, she speaks multiple languages. She'll testify. She'll say, I signed a contract, right? Because what are her options? Where is she going to go if she says, well, this was coerced? Well, actually, I was, you know, sexually violated and, and made into this person's property back in Cape Town when I was already doing work in town because my own people were decimated, right? Completely decimated, um, by colonialism, right? Now I'm going to come here. These are my options. Like, where am I going to go? So she's going to narrate herself as having a contract. And then of course, right after the, this trial, um, where her, her labor contract is the thing that's under concern, one of our main captors, right? Just marries her because that solves all the problems. He could do whatever he wants then if he marries her. Um, and then she doesn't have any more rights. Um, so this idea that contract will be labor contract, that that consent to labor, that marriage, um, which is seen as a tool largely of white women, right, to uh, gain certain kinds of rights. But we also know, of course, it lost them rights and property and other things, right? Um, th these are these are both exposed as the fictions that they are, right, for her. Um, Sally Hemings didn't even have access to those legal fictions, right? And so that's the real move from narrating the kind of afterlives of slavery in the fiction of freedom, right? Is Sally Hemings only had access to this kind of genealogy and these promises and again and again, um, right, even they, you know, Inequity Reed even narrates like the family was probably at every moment waiting for him to send her away during the presidential campaign where it's exposed, right? That they're, I mean, and he's not hiding it, right? He's got his, his, I mean, part of it, you brought up the skin color, right? But like it, it's a difficult thing because you actually do want to narrate what generations of sexual violence does, which is likely she was really light skin, right? We have a problem with that with passing narratives too. We we were just like, okay, Tessa Thompson can star in passing, right? Nicole Kidman should star in passing, right? As in not really, I understand the, the, the reasons why we wouldn't want someone who does not identify as black to do that. But we, we as a culture have a hard time not imagining racial phenotypes being different than what we think, right? And that's a way of encasing biological race and racism 
to also erase sexual violence, right? So it's actually really interesting to think about Sally Hemings and be like, well, actually, right? She's again, third generation sec born of sexual violence, right? And then, you know, being exploited in that way as well, right? Um, it's really difficult to think, you know, to think about that. And yet that was the mark for Jefferson. He had people working in his house, laboring as enslaved, who looked just like him, right? Who had red hair and freckles. And that is the story people tell. That is how everybody knew his kids were there, right? And they were serving. So it's like, it's this wild thing to think about the prom and that's what um again the scholar Emily Owens has this other great paper called Promises, right? Without legal recourse, what you had were promises and an informal economy of freedom, right? That that was difficult to navigate, but people tried to extract and do different things. And then on this other side, you've got the fiction of contract itself as if that would save anyone, as if that would have saved anyone, right? We all know it's a fiction, yeah. Well, and I think one of the important things that you bring out in this talk, in your discussion of contracts is that, yes, it's a fiction of, it's a metaphor for the social relations that kind of hang over everything, that there are, there are consequences that can be leveled at somebody at any time. So yeah. Sally Hemings was a slave her entire life. That meant that there were consequences for any misstep that she could make. You know, she was never, she was constantly reminded, you are my property first. And the same with the Hartman. Like, she, first you are a sexual performer. And anything that comes after that is, is written in that violence. Is Yes. Yeah. Um, and just to say um, two things, I always want to cite, again, where my stuff comes from. So legal fictions and the idea of the fiction of contract. Um, Carla Holloway, who's a brilliant um, scholar, uh, as well as a novelist, has written two novels that um, sort of come from passing, right, that are actually written about the characters, but after the time of passing that are really great. She wrote um uh, uh, about legal fictions, right, of contract. And then the second thing is, you know, Sally Hemings, interestingly, right, um, when Jefferson dies, she is given her walking papers, right? So she is technically free, although he, she was not one of the people he freed in his will. Um, and so it, it actually is sort of, fascinating to think about. And Barbara Chase Rabot actually starts her story and frames her story through that post walking papers moment when she's imagined to be living in Richmond with um, one of her sons, right? Is to sort of think about what happens. Uh, in fact, when a census taker comes and doesn't know whether to classify her as white or as black, right? So it's, um, again, sort of this this moment of illustration of sort of thinking about what does freedom even mean? She wasn't given freedom. She was sort of like given walking paper, right? Like she was given a kind of freedom, right? Um, uh, uh, something akin to freedom, right? As, um, as uh, Harriet Jacobs calls her own choice of sexual liaison, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's so why it's, it's no, 
you can understand why so many people um, and so many um, African-American and Afro-diasporic authors and artists want to make something out of this and try to figure out what stories come from this um, because it's an origin story, right? Well, I think, yeah, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it up in that I'd like you to kind of tie these threads together as far as like, especially black women's sexuality within this kind of liminal space of either or not and presence and all that kind of um, vulnerability that we were talking about before. So, Absolutely. Um, and I just want to say again that um, uh, my field, I consider myself a, a student of Black feminism, but um, African-American women's history and Afro-diasporic women's history, particularly of enslavement, has done amazing work on this, but even post-enslavement. So um, folks from Evelyn Hammonds to Darlene Clark Hine to um more um, recent, Deborah White, there's all kinds of folks doing work on this, Jennifer Morgan, to more recent folks, like as I have cited, um, uh, Emily Owens, Jessica Marie Johnson, Marissa Fuentes, are trying to work out, have all been working on how do you work this out? How do you call it rape? How do you call it sexual assault? And also how do you question ideas about pleasure, about consent, about desire um, and about labor, right? To really acknowledge it as work, right? Uh, As a kind of work that doesn't evacuate consent in the same way that you could sign a labor contract and still be forced and coerced into doing labor you don't want to do and is not um, good for you, right? Um, How do we talk about this when we talk about um, a category of people who was legally, categorically, not able to be raped, right? Because rape is a legal category, right? Um, That you're not able in US courts to testify in a court of law to be recognized, right? Um, as As a witness or as someone bringing suit. Although again, there are these liminal cases where slave codes are, um, more fluid, like in New Orleans, where multiple different um, kinds of law come into play at different points, right, before things are federally codified. Um, For me, I think it's really powerful to think about the way that, and again, Emily Owens does this, commerce and transaction and labor are always a part of the story of Black women's sexuality. And that doesn't turn them into bad subjects and in fact should make us really question what the roots are, as many people have around respectability politics. What are the roots for black women as political subjects and as sexual subjects? Um, How are they stitched together through sexuality and through public displays of sexuality? uh, almost always racist, right? And also, where else is there desire? Are there roots other than home, community, etc., and coercion, rape, resistance, right? To all things. Um, to me, this is um, this is black feminist living. This is life. This is how 
Black women have made a way out of no way, as various theorists have theor uh, have have thought about it. Um, and there's no need to romanticize that. Um, it's really it's really difficult, but I also think it gives that vulnerability gives us paths through to thinking about subjectivity today that is imperfect, that is um, always compromised, never pure, right? In whatever way we want to think of it. And that thinks about the most vulnerable among us first as the subject of law and rights, not that law and rights will save us, right? Rather than thinking about how can we all ascend to Jefferson? How can we all ascend to the rights bearing white male subject? Um, which is not to say we shouldn't go for change, right? And, and so-called progress, but what would it look like if our political goals we're just more about vulnerability, right? And about, um, if not protection, then care uh, and remedy uh, and ways of understanding the political that aren't about um, that aren't about risk elimination, but mitigation. It's, it's not very fun to think about, but I think it's a place where a lot of women live, and I certainly think we learn from the history of Black women and Black feminism that that's um, a way, a way through. Yeah, and and hopefully a site of change, as you said. So, deeply, deeply. It's not giving up on change. It's changed through another route. Um, so we don't need these, we don't need ideal subjects, right? And we see this when we are dealing with BLM as well, like, um, and with uh, carceral reform, right? Which is just like, um, it's, it, I think, it, or with, you know, post the post-Dobbs landscape, we all want purely innocent folks right to come through and be our models and i think that we we need those stories of real lives and of lives that were touched where black children are killed and whatnot like no one as i have to say to my children all the time no one deserves to die right like how do you say how do you say that right um and really mean it and really center your politics on that and it's not totalizing um, these don't need to be our only heroines, right? I'm not even trying to turn them into heroines, but it's something else for living and for for the rest of us who aren't heroines uh, or or and don't want to be tragic, right? In the in in our plots, right? It's not the only plot, even as we recognize the deep violence um, and the deep vulnerability. We recognize how people have lived through. Uh, in various way, complicated ways. Yeah, well, that, that's fantastic. And thank you uh, so much for your time today and talking to us about your book and uh, Sally Hemings and uh, was it Sarah Bartman? Sarah. Sarah Bartman or Sarchi Bartman. There's a lot of debate. We can't recover what her um, indigenous name was. And Sarchi is the diminutive diminu of Sarah, um, a Dutch diminutive, right? Um, but Sarah is not her given name either, right? It's so difficult to even, and there's debates about like how to even reference her. And it's so um, indicative of the difficulty of even trying to recover these histories of what do you even call her to show respect and honor um, when all the options are compromised, right? Colonial. Yeah, I mean, yeah they're all colonial. They're all 
they're all um diminishing her humanity um uh and i've i've done both i've i've referred to her as sarchi in my first book and sarah in my second book um is i sort of changed what i thought was ethically um where I wanted to put my emphasis and where well, how I how I felt was the most ethical way at the time, recognizing that there's no there's there, there's it's not like it, there can be a pure ethical way to do it. Yeah, and I mean, I talked about that in the slave names and Phyllis Wheatley's first name came from the slave ship, and I mean he's Sally Hemings' name is right, and and her last name is that of her enslavers, right? Like how. How do you even start, right? Bonetta's name came from a ship again, and from um, the 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 captain, the admiral who saved her, right? From uh, interior African enslavement, it is, you know, th there's no there's no winning. Right. There's only trying to tell the stories in the most ethical way we can at the moment. And also knowing um, that we'll get it wrong, that it'll change. Um, knowing for myself that I'm never the best person to tell the stories, even if I feel compelled to, right? As a white woman in my field, right? Like knowing that there are limits um, and trying to do what I think is the most ethical and shines a light on other people, not myself, uh, in the best way possible. And I, I just want to say, I see you doing that with your series and with what you're doing with your work with the library as well, and really expanding how we think and talk and read about these issues. Thanks for listening to the Unpacking 1619. For more information on Heights Library 1619 Project Discussion Group, or to check out more interviews with scholars, please visit heightslibrary.org. See you next episode, wherever you listen to podcasts.